Well, good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Finally, we're back in the book of Romans. Aren't you glad to be there? Amen. So we're in Romans chapter number 3 today. If you haven't picked up and would like to, or maybe you misplaced yours, or maybe you filled it up already, we have more of these uh, books available. That's the book of Romans in the translation that I'll be using. And you can pick them up. They're paperback. They're $5. And uh, that's what it cost us. And uh, it's a journaling uh, scripture book. And so it's the book of Romans with journaling pages. And so if you want to use those, we encourage you to pick one up. And they're available today in the foyer. And so <clears throat> uh, if uh, you uh, ask Alicia or any of the staff members here today, they'll be glad to help you. All right. Now, Romans chapter number three is where we're at today. And if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open it up. Find Romans 3, turn it on, find Romans chapter 3, and we're going to do a little bit of a recap today because it's been some weeks since we were in Romans, and so we're in Romans chapter 3, and we'll begin today with verse number 1. Why don't we read the text, and then we'll come back to it, all right? So what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision considerable in every way? First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our righteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why? Not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what's evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Father, speak to our hearts today as we explore the truths of your word. Holy Spirit of God, convict us of our sin. Draw us to you. Convert us. Change us. Console us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. He is called an apostle. He is one untimely born, he said. He is an apostle different than the other apostles. The Lord appeared to him in a special calling on the road to Damascus and gave him a ministry to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Paul had never visited Rome, but he always planned to go to Rome and see and visit with the church that was there. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he used his citizenship for his advantage when he needed to. Paul surely 
could speak Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, maybe other languages as well. Paul plans to visit Rome, and in this letter, he talks about his plans. He wants to come and see them, visit with them, get to know them. Although he knows some of the members that are in the church, he plans to visit them on his way to Spain. So that was Paul's intention. He writes about this in this letter. And so he is laying out for this church that he's never visited. The church consists of both Gentiles and Jewish Christians. And he's laying out the gospel that he preaches to Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, this church is made up of both, but there's a tension that we feel in the book between these two groups of Gentile believers and Hebrew believers. He writes this book most likely from the city of Corinth because he refers to Erastus, the city treasurer, in chapter 16, verse 23. And we know from 2 Timothy, Erastus was in Corinth. And on his way to Jerusalem, he's there on his way, and he's bringing a gift from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the believers that are in Jerusalem and suffering difficulty. And this is at the very close of the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. It's one of the greatest theological statements in all of the New Testament, particularly by the Apostle Paul. It is an out, became an outline for many systematic theologies. Specifically, Calvin and Luther leaned heavily upon Romans and their understanding of doctrine. And it's inspired. It's been kept for us. It is the very word of God. The theme of this book is found in Romans chapter 1. Notice in verse number 16 and 17. And the passage that we looked at today is still a continuing exposition of this great statement in verse number 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power. (laughs) Pardon me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In Paul's preaching here in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he's laying out this overview that is the gospel for all people, that this gospel is powerful to save all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. This gospel is the same for Jews and Gentiles. But the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So he outlines in chapter number one, remember, that the Gentiles, the pagans, idol worshipers, people who've never even heard the gospel, they are without excuse and guilty before God because what's known about God is, is certainly evident to them in all of creation, and in them by their own creation, by God himself, their own conscience. 
And so when they say they're without excuse, that's not true. Every one of us are guilty. Sometimes people bring up a false argument. Yeah, but what about that innocent person out there that's never heard? No, they're not an innocent person. That's not true. We were all born in sin, and we all have sinned, and we have all rejected God. So all of us are without excuse. In chapter 1, verse number 28, he says, They did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, and God delivered them over to a corrupt mind, so they do what is not right. Verse 20 of chapter 1 says, as a result, people are without excuse. But the Jews are also without excuse. First category of Jews are those moralists. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, every one of you who judges is without excuse. You judge other people, but you yourselves are not very exacting in the judgment of yourself. In verse number three, do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you'll escape God's judgment? No. He's saying to Jews, you too are sinful. You too are lawbreakers. Verse five, chapter two, verse five, because of your hardened, unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. You too are under the wrath of God. Notice in verse number 9, chapter 2, verse 9, there will, be, there will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. Wow. So God's judgment is on us all. Verse 11, there is no favoritism with God. God doesn't play favorites. Verse 12, for all who sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So you see his argument. He's, seen, he's saying all of us are lawbreakers. And so the question is, what about my circumcision? What about my Jewish identity? What about my Jewish heritage? And so in chapter number 2, verse number 25, Paul said, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you're a lawbreaker... Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So what is a true Jew? Verse 28. Glad you asked. Listen to what Paul's argument. For a person who's not a Jew, who's one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who's one outwardly inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart. How? By the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So do you see the essence of being Jewish? It is not something outward and visible, but it's something inward and invisible. It's not. It is of the heart, not of the flesh, it is affected by the Holy Spirit, not the flesh, and it brings approval of God, not man's approval. Humans look on the outward, but God looks at the inward. So what makes a person Jewish? 
circumcision of the heart, a work of the Holy Spirit, a new birth. It's the transformation of God in you. And this begs the question, and that's where chapter 3 is at. And chapter 3 has been considered by many to be one of the most first eight verses, one of the more difficult passages in the book of Romans to interpret and to preach on. Because it's a very close argument that he's making, and it's an argument of logic. And some people said it's like there's a heckler in the crowd speaking to to Paul and saying, yeah, but what about this? But what about that? Some people said it might be an internal argument that Paul's had with himself because it's Paul the rabbi when he was trained as a rabbi and now Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. And in this argument, there's some questions that he asks, and that's the way we've outlined the sermon today. And so question number one, are there any advantages for the Jewish people? That's the first question. Notice verse 1 and 2, chapter 3. Do you have your Bible? Are you still awake? Look with me. Chapter 1, verse 2. So what advantage does the Jew have? Are there any? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now notice verse 2. Considerable in every way. First and foremost, chiefly. He says first, he never gets to second. This is the most, number one is that you've been entrusted, given the stewardship to know and to guard and to keep the oracles of God. You've had the very word of God. What an advantage that is. Chiefly and first and foremost and most importantly, is God has given you the word of God, the oracles of God, it's, it's a huge advantage in every respect. You have access to the truth. Now, Paul has already sort of argued this in chapter 2, verse 17. Look with me. In chapter 2, verse number 17, listen, look at what he said earlier. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, you know his will, approve the things that are superior, instructed from the law. These were advantages. If you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment and knowledge of truth and the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? He said, you already have the advantage. Don't you understand? You have the advantage as, as God's people. You have the advantage of the covenant. You have the advantage with, uh, that, that God made with Abraham and the promise to him. And you have the advantage of the history of the Exodus. And you have the advantage of the law itself. And you have the advantage of the law and the, the land and the promises that God gave you. So what did this circumcision mean? It meant a cutting away. It meant that you were distinguishing yourself as God's people. You were chosen by God, not because of your size, not because of your goodness, but by his grace. You were given his law. You are the people of God. You are Jews. The word Jew comes from the word Judah. After the exile, the Israelites took on the name Jew, meaning from the Judah. They were covenant people. This, this argument that he broaches here, he takes up in much fuller detail and discussion in chapters 9, 10, and 11. 
of Romans. So look with me. We're going to jump ahead for a moment. In Romans chapter number 9, beginning with verse number 1. Now the argument is, what is the advantage that the Jew has of the circumcised? Okay, that's the argument. Let's see if there are any. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. Now listen. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, why is Paul so broken? For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. I am broken because my Jewish people have rejected God. Now listen, they are Israelites. Here's the advantage, verse 4. To them belong what? Are you with me? To them belong what? Adoption. God adopted them as his children. Not only that, the what? Glory. Who did God give the Shekinah glory to? Who did God lead by his glory out of Egypt? Who, who, who saw the glory of God in the tabernacle? Only Jewish people. And the covenants. The law. Notice what he says in this argument in chapter number 9. He says the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship service, great picture of the atonement that is there. And the promises, the promises of his presence, the promises of the land, the promises that God would bless them. And the ancestors are theirs. And not only that, from them come the physical descent of the Messiah, the greatest of all. The Messiah comes through the Jews, through the Israelites. Yet, not all of Israel would be saved. That's his argument, chapter 9, verse 6. Now it is not, not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Just because you're Jewish in your lineage and your ancestry, it doesn't make you a Jew in your heart. Wow. So you see closely this argument. Are they better off? Are they uh, Well, no, not necessarily. But do they have benefits? Yes, they have benefits. They have the word of God, the revelation of God. They can understand the will of God. They know how to discern right or wrong because of the law. They have stories of grace, story of the Red Sea, story of the death angel, how God passed over, the story of the manna, how God provided, the story about the quail, how God provided, the story of the rock, how God gave them water, the story of crossing the Jordan River to, in, to take the land, the story of the fall of Jericho, the story of the tabernacle and the glory of God and the temple service. They were given benefit after benefit after benefit. Second question in Romans chapter 3, if God's people are unfaithful, does that mean God's not faithful? Hmm. Verse 3, what then if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? I love the way Paul responds, no way, dude. Absolutely not. Let God be true. Everybody else may lie, but not God. 
He is always true. Truth of the matter is, God is true. When you are unfaithful, does that make God unfaithful to punish you? No. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, <coughs> pardon me, Nehemiah chapter number nine, my grandkids came to see me and they gave me their cold. Nehemiah chapter number 9, verse 33. So now our God, the great and mighty and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all our hardships that have afflicted us. Our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until now, today, you are righteous concerning all that's happened to us. These are the people in exile, the people that were punished. Because you have acted how faithfully, while we acted how wickedly. God's not unfaithful, and God's not unrighteous. We were sinful. God set up this covenant so that there were consequences to disobedience in this covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter number 29, verse number 14, I'm making this covenant and this oath not only with you, but with those who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not here today. Now, this is Moses teaching them about blessing and curse. Notice verse 16, indeed you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, passed through the nations where you traveled. You saw their abhorrent images, idols made of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which were among them. But be, be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there's no root among you bearing poisonous, bitter fruit. Verse 19, when someone hears the words of this oath, he may be considered, consider himself exempt, thinking, I will have peace even though I follow my own stub, stubborn heart. Do you hear this entitlement? This will lead to destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Instead, his anger and jealousy will burn against that person, and every curse written in this scroll will descend on him, and the Lord will blot out his name under heaven and single him out for the harm from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book the law. Wow. Moses says, I set before you a blessing or a curse. And God's people, when they choose to go the way of rebellion, bring the curse upon themselves. And that's Paul's argument. He's going back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 30, verse 15. Look with me. Deuteronomy, see, today I've set before you life and prosperity, 
death and adversity. For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances, that you may live and multiply. The Lord your God may bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, you do not listen. You're led astray to bow and worship to other gods and serve them. I tell you today, you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land you're entering to possess according to the Jordan, across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God. Obey him. Remain faithful to him, for he's your life. He'll prolong your days as you live in the land of the Lord, the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not about entitlement. It's about a relationship with God. King David, he was a man after God's own heart. He was anointed to be the king of Israel while still a boy. The prophet Samuel said, this is God's man. He saw it. The Lord, the Holy Spirit set him aside. Yet David sinned horribly. He sinned in stealing another man's wife, lusting after another woman he's not married to, who is married to to a Hittite, and a man who was faithful in his army. And David conspired, had an illicit affair, tried to cover it up. And ultimately, he ended up murdering this man because of his sin. But God saw it. And the judgment of God came upon David for his sin. And he was confronted by Naaman the prophet. And if you look with me to Psalm 51, listen to what it says. Was God right to punish David for his sin? Listen to the words of David himself. In chapter 51, verse 4, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You're right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. Wow. God's response of discipline does not make him unfaithful to his covenant. It's the height of an entitlement attitude to say, I'm entitled. I can live however I want because I'm privileged. We talk a lot about white privilege, rich privilege, social privileges. The Jews thought they had religious privilege. In Micah chapter 3, verse 11, this is what the prophet said. The truth of the matter is your leaders take bribes, your priests take payments for their work, and prophets divine for silver. And yet they say, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. They live sinfully, but because of their entitlement, they think that they are off the hook. That's so wrong. Those he loves, he disciplines us. 
So just because we sin, God should keep his promises is their argument. Listen to me. Be not deceived, God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, so shall he reap. God is not unfaithful. Third question, is God righteous to judge us? Now notice this is the argument, and again, back to Romans. And is it right for God to judge us? Chapter number 3 again. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human, human argument, Paul says. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? They go on to argue, but if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? The argument is, in verse number 8, let us do what is evil that good may come. Have you heard that kind of stupid argument before? Well, if my sin demonstrates God's grace, I'll just sin more, show more of his grace. Paul said that question is so stupid it doesn't require an answer. Now, they can understand how that someone might say that in a perverted kind of way because this is what Paul said in chapter number 5, verse number 19. Now listen. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, where sin abounded, multiplied. Grace superabounded, multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The truth of the matter is, no matter how dark your sin, and God's grace is greater. Can somebody say amen about that? His mercy, though, leads to obedience and worship, not further sin. And any attitude like that is a perversion of the truth. Marvelous grace, we think, of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sounds just like the song that we sang today. Dark is the stain I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. It exceeds our sin and our guilt, doesn't it? But we don't keep on sinning so that God's grace might be more evident. That is a perversion of the gospel. It's not true. It's not right. Fourth question. Are we better off? Now, that's a whole different question. You see, the question was, are there benefits? Yes. But are we better off? Notice what Paul says in verse number 9, chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better off? Next question, not at all. For we've already charged both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it's written, 
There is no one righteous, not even one. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many of you all agree with me? There's none righteous, no, not even one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. We're all sinners. In chapter number 2 of Romans, verse 11, for there's no favoritism for God, for all who sin without the law will perish without the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You see, we're all sinners. We all need a Savior. And that's why there's no entitlement. There's no favoritism. Jesus corrected this false idea that was among the Jews in his own day. He told a parable about a man, who, a great man who gave a great banquet in Luke's gospel, chapter number 14. And he said, when everything was ready, he sent his servant to those who had been previously invited. And they all, with one voice, began to make an excuse. And one man said, I can't come because I bought a piece of property. I need to go see it. That sounds flimsy to me. Number two said, I just bought some oxen, and I need to go try them out. Seems flimsy to me. Another man said, I just got married, and I'm hempecked, and I can't come. Well, that sounds maybe right. But anyway... uh, Jesus corrects it. He said to his servant that I want you to go to those who don't have anything. And I want you to go to the lame, the blind, the hurt, and the injured and compel them to come into my house. He said, I've already done that. And there's still room at the table. Then I want you to go out into the highways and byways. I want you to go to the Gentiles and those who are out there in the middle of nowhere. And you invite them to come. Those out there in the middle of boondocks in truck stop cities like Troy, Illinois. And you tell them. The grace of God has a banquet. And I'll tell you the truth. Those previously invited will never, ever eat at my table. Those who have an entitlement attitude that God owes them a place will never know the grace of God. Applying these questions, I need to hurry. Are, these benefit, are there benefits in a community of faith? And what are they? This is good application for us from this teaching of Paul's. Number one, are there benefits? How many of y'all believe there are benefits to growing up in a church and in a Christian home family? Yeah, there are huge benefits. First of all, you get to hear the word of God. You are taught the word of God. You hear the gospel. You have a God-centered worldview. You see the ordinances of the church, baptism. And it's a, what does this mean? It means Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again. What does baptism mean? It means my old life is dead, and I'm buried with Christ. I'm raised, I'm a new person inside. What does the Lord's Supper mean? What do these things mean? It means that God God provided for our salvation, that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, bore our sins, and rose again victoriously. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And that an innocent one died for the guilty ones. And Jesus shed his pure blood that we might have everlasting life. You grew up with that. 
You grew up in a Christian home and a Christian family. I'll tell you what I am tired of. I'm tired of hearing this lame excuse. Well, he doesn't like to come to church because he's got a drug problem. He was drugged to church when he was a kid. Get over it. That's not a thing. Listen to me. You didn't grow up in a home where your dad came home and beat your mom to death because he was drunk. Maybe you didn't grow up in a home. I didn't have this. I didn't know this. I grew up in a home where my mom and dad loved each other. I grew up in a home where they read the Bible. I grew up in a home where we prayed every night. I grew up in a home where they brought me to church. The issue is not what my mom and dad, the issue is rebellion in my heart. Quiet in here. The issue is not that you were brought to church. The issue is you're a rebel and you're sinful. You need to repent. Now, you may have had imperfect parents, but you could have had far worse. Am I wrong about that? It got quiet in here all of a sudden. Let me tell you, it's the Word of God, man. It's, we have the Word of God, and the Word of God does something for us. The Word of God strips us of these emperor's clothes, like the emperor's new clothes. And we are naked, and we need a Savior, and we don't have any righteousness of our own. What a great benefit to us. Secondly, God's judgment on sin is not unfaithfulness. And God will not allow sin to satisfy your soul. And when you live in rebellion and you're living in sin and you're living like a prodigal, you will not experience satisfaction in your soul. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be satisfied. But you can live unrighteously. You'll never be satisfied. And that's God's judgment on you. And you'll always feel alone. And God won't leave you alone. He'll pester you and he'll convict you and he'll draw you and he'll pursue you. And God will let hardships come into your life because he loves you. Why did God let this happen to me? He's sovereign, wise, and good, as Jeru tells us often. Sometimes God in his sovereignty lets very difficult things happen for correction in your life. And so that you depend upon God. At my house this week, my daughter Valerie came, and my son-in-law, and their three little children And then Brad and Aaron came for a while at our house. And then Andrew and Lindsay came to our house. And we had six little kids under six years old. You can think that's sweet. (laughs) But it was chaos at times. And when one of those grand, sweet, little, innocent, perfect, sinless grandchildren and they were opening Christmas gifts and playing with toys, and they all just perfectly played, and nobody had an argument. Do you believe that? No. And one grandchild pushes another grandchild down. And what happened? Parents swooped up that child 
and said, what are you doing? You don't act that way. Set him on the couch. You're in time out right now. Why did you do this? And talked with them, teaching them, correcting them. And then that, grand, that child, by their parent, said, you are going to apologize. You're going to give out a hug. And you're going to say, I'm sorry. Now, immediately, they said, oh, yes, we'll do that immediately. No. Mm. It's because of rebellion. Did that parent not love that child? I submit to you that child, that parent did that because that parent did love that child. And I submit to you, it would be reckless and unloving not to discipline or teach that child. And God has loved you. And he will deal with you. Sin never brings glory to God. This is applying these truths. Your sin never brings glory to God. Let me tell you what sin does. Sin dishonors God. Sin damages relationships always. Sin destroys your soul. And sin tarnishes your witness. Sin never brings good. It's born in evil. It's rooted in evil. And this would be the stupid argument. If one of my sons said to me, I'm going to go rob a bank, and then I'm going to get caught, and then I'm going to be convicted, and then I'm going to go to prison, so that the love of my father might be manifest to everyone that he still loves me, even though I robbed a bank. Now I would. But his dishonoring act would not bring glory to me. Let me tell you what does bring glory to God. Living right. Loving genuinely. Paying your bills. Being honest. Serving Jesus. You see, you, listen to me, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how shall it be made salty again? It's good for nothing. To be cast out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus said, you, you, listen, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they set it on a lampstand that all may see. Let your light so shine before men that they may see by your what? Good what? Works. And glorify God who's in heaven. What brings glory to God? Your good life. Sin never glorifies God. Number four, question, are we better off than other people? Not, with, not without Jesus, man. Because all of us are sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus, John 1.17. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. God has demonstrated his own love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one way to God, and it's in through Jesus Christ. We're all sinners, and we're all lost without Jesus. Amen? Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, but it's all the grace of God. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. It's found in Jesus only. Father in heaven, have your way in our hearts, in our lives. Father, I pray that today, that Father, as we've thought about this argument that Paul and the questions that he gives, speaks right to our daily living. I pray that today, if there's one person that doesn't know Jesus today, they would turn from sin and trust in him and say, Dear God, I trust in Jesus alone as my Savior. I confess you as the Lord and Master of my life, and I put my faith in you. Others here today who've lived entitled but rebellious, pray that today you'll convict them and bring them home to repentance and humble faith in Jesus. Have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.